Good afternoon, everyone. So it's been a very exciting, eventful week. Uh, as you can see, there are a few extra empty chairs around you. Uh, Daryl and Brunwyn say hello. Um, so uh, on t- Wednesday morning at 12.30, uh, little Zechariah Chang was born. And uh, they're out in Fern Tree Gully uh, recuperating as a family. And so uh, Brunwyn says she sends her regards to everyone that's here uh, this afternoon. And also, uh, it, we also had a number of birthdays. And uh, a couple here at the church, the wife had a birthday. And so Galen took Janelle off for the weekend. And so anyway, there are a lot of uh, eventful things that happen. Now, um, at the beginning of the year, we started a series uh, that went through the book of Acts to share with, and, and the idea of that is that Jinha and I want to share with you, as we are starting a church, we want to go over through the Bible how the church of God kind of was birthed and how the church started. And we recently finished, uh, just a couple weeks ago, which brings us to uh, the next sermon series, and we're calling it Legacy of Light. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to be walking through um, the next portion of church history from where the book of Acts left off, we're going to pick up and we're going to cover all the way to where we are today. So hopefully by the end of this series, you'll have a good idea of how the church has changed and progressed as the centuries have passed from generation to generation. Today, we're going to be covering the second century. Um, the second century church was a group of Christians that were the next generation after the apostles had uh, passed on. And this next generation uh, of Christians were people who kind of lived in a very interesting time period. Uh, the Roman Empire uh, was basically in control of most of Europe and, and Asia Minor and even bits of Africa. And most of the Christians uh, lived in little cities that were scattered throughout the Roman Empire. These were people who uh, lived in pagan cities where life revolved around pagan religions. And as a result, they had to learn how to get along with uh, people and even witness to those who had very different beliefs than themselves. Uh, just to give you a few examples, the Christians lived in a society that um, used to celebrate birthdays. And this was something that was kind of uh, foreign for the, for the Christians. Uh, if you look throughout history, the origin of birthdays, well, the earliest record of birthdays that we have comes from Egypt. And only the pharaohs or the emperors were allowed to celebrate birthdays. And what would take place is, uh, as the new incoming pharaoh would be coronated, uh, it would be called his birthday, and he was then deified. And so while this mortal was alive and he became emperor, he was then, that was then his birthday because he's kind of become a god now. And so, uh, this kind of passed on from generation to generation, and the Greeks kind of picked up on this idea of, uh, celebrating uh, the birthdays of the emperors and what would take place is uh, they started adding uh, cakes. And I don't know if any of you have ever wondered, where do birthday cakes come from? Well, if you do a Google search on birthday cakes, you'll be very pleasantly surprised. I don't know if you'd be pleasantly surprised, but you'd be, it's an interesting story. And basically what they would do is they would make these little shape, uh, these cakes in the shape of moons and they would put these little candles on it to, you know, cause moon emits light and they would light these candles and it was kind of like a celebration of, um, another 
uh, astronomical figure in the sky, and basically that, that kind of came into uh, pagan worship. And when the Romans came into power, this is the first empire that actually allowed every common day person to celebrate a birthday. And so now everybody gets to celebrate a birthday. And what would generally happen is uh, on this particular day, it was a very festive day, and it was a, a day of basically partying it up because it's like, hey, another day of life, and you get your nice little moon cake, and you get to celebrate your day just like the kings do. And it's like, live like a king for a day. Live like a king or a queen, if you will. And so when the Christians saw this in the second century, they, they basically had this conviction, this is not something that we can partake in. And so there was a lot of transitioning to uh, how the Christians began to interact with society around them. Here's another practice that the uh, Christians did uh, tended to abstain from in their lives. Uh, they, didn't, um, they didn't observe uh, Christmas. Let's see here. Yeah, they didn't observe Christmas. And basically, um, if you look at the title of Christmas in, in uh, Roman history, it translates to basically the birthday of the unconquered sun. And uh, I'm curious, does anybody know why December 25 is a significant day outside of the fact that we think it's the birth of Christ? So generally, um, it was kind of celebrated as the winter solstice. And so it's kind of like where the days begin to lengthen, and they've been shortened, 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 and on winter solstice, it's like the birthday of the sun. The sun is unconquerable. And so the pagans worship the sun, and so December 25, they're like, this is the day that we're going to celebrate. And what took place is, um, later on in the 4th century, uh, Constantine kind of baptized um, baptized Christmas and Christians began to observe Christmas as the day where Jesus was born. And there's all sorts of interesting parallels between uh, Jesus' divinity dying and raising again and the sun kind of, this is the day that the sun is born. And so anyway, the Christians saw this in the 2nd century and basically they decided we are not going to take any part of this. Um, just interesting fact, there's also candle lighting on on, uh, on Christmas, and I don't know why, but people just liked ca- lighting candles back in the day. I don't know if people are just pyromaniacs or whatnot, but candles are fun. Um, the next thing that the second century uh, Christians didn't participate in was Easter. And another name for Easter is Ishtar, and Ishtar happens to be uh, a goddess of fertility. And I don't know if any of you have ever wondered, what's the connection between bunnies and eggs? I mean, bunnies don't lay eggs. What's the deal with this? And basically, Ishtar was a goddess of fertility, and eggs are another symbol of fertility. And so on Easter, what would take place is people would uh, hide these Easter eggs, and it kind of became a tradition. But the second century Christians looked at this and said, we are not going to uh, partake of this immoral revelry. And so they kind of decided we're not going to partake of this. Um, military service was not allowed for early church Christians, and uh, the early church Christians actually still continued um, observing the different festivals from the Jewish traditions. The Sabbath was something that was observed by the second century Christians, and the Ten Commandments were also something that was valued by the second century Christians. Now, as I think about this, the Christians were communicating very loudly and very clearly to the pagans around them, we are not like you. And it's, it, it's almost very challenging when you are living your life just wanting to be a normal person, living a normal life, but you're called to live these practices uh, that are very different from those around you. And the Christians face this challenge. And I don't know if any of you sitting here today would feel the same way as you're living your life as someone who is following after God or learning about God. Now, in the Bible, it has these 
maybe there are times in the Bible where God calls us to do certain things to uh, the, the Bible instructs us as to how we are to interact with those that are different from us um, in the Bible. So I want to share a couple of verses with you. And David actually read a couple of these already. But in John chapter four, 17, verses 14, Jesus says this, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And so Jesus kind of gives this teaching to his followers you are supposed to be different from the world around you. And in James chapter 1, verse 27, this verse is given, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. And there it is again. Now, as I think about these verses, it seems pretty clear. Be different. But... As I, I want to share one other verse after this, and the question that I want to raise is this. If you're supposed to communicate the love of God to the community around you, if you're supposed to communicate, I care about you, but you're so different from that community, how are you supposed to interact with a community that is so completely different from you? Especially when you read verses like, don't be a part of that world. Don't be a part of that type of mindset. There's a verse in... 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 17. And this is where the Bible actually defines what the world is, and it calls it, it calls it worldliness. And here's what the text says. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Now, I want to ask this question. It's a rhetorical question. I just want you to think about it as we're, um, as we're sharing. What does worldliness mean to you? What does worldliness mean to you? Or what, what has been told to you in the past in terms of avoiding worldliness? Now, when I think of worldliness, I think of specific things that I'm either allowed to do or not allowed to do. And um, when I was growing up in the church, something that was commonly uh, talked about was kind of like uh, the media or Hollywood. And it was kind of like, Hollywood is of the world, and you should not uh, watch things from Hollywood, or um, you know, it, it promotes drugs, sex, and violence. And it was kind of like that same drum was kind of beaded year after year after year. And it was kind of like, avoid these things. So I kind of grew up thinking, this is what it means to be a part of the world. So if I'm attracted to whatever it is that I'm watching, then I'm partaking in worldliness. That's me personally. Now, as I think through this passage, there are three kind of sections where uh, the Apostle John kind of breaks down what worldliness is. He says the lust of the flesh. And when I think of lust of the flesh, I kind of think of, oh, well, that's just physical, that's sex. That kind of uh, seems quite um, logical. The next thing, the lust of the eyes. Something that stimulates the, the visual senses. Something that's attractive. And I might even say something that's beautiful. Here's the third thing, the pride of life. And in uh, 1 John chapter 3, the same word for life is used, and basically the definition for that is kind of material goods. And the idea is, if you are able to accumulate goods, then you accum accumulate wealth. 
with that comes stature, with that comes, um, yeah, just uh, confidence in what one has been able to achieve. And so uh, this is kind of listed. Now, as I think about these things, three things, I kind of ask myself the question, are those things in of themselves wrong? So for example, if I think about sex, is sex wrong? Now, um, if sex is wrong, um, a lot of us are in trouble. For those of you who are single, well, you can go to heaven. But for the rest of us, like, game over, it's too late. Any of you who've had kids, I'm sorry, like, no go for you, right? And so when I think about this, um, sex is supposed to be something that is uh, very intimate. It's where it's a byproduct of um, this emotional connection that comes between two people that care for each other, that are committed to each other, and they're saying, I genuinely care for you. And that intimacy is a byproduct of that. Uh, love is supposed to be a good thing. So when I read this, I kind of think, man, that's kind of challenging when I think about what is worldliness and what is not worldliness, because what can I do, what can I not do? Here's the second thing, the idea of attraction and beauty. Is attraction and beauty wrong uh, in and of itself? And I kind of wonder, you know, beauty does a lot of good in the world. Like, I walk into, uh, I walk down the streets of Melbourne, and I kind of think to myself, this is actually a really beautiful place. And I'm not uh, this massive world traveler, so I mean, I have Berrien Springs to compare this to. <laughs> Basically, it's like cornfields and cows, and cornfields and cows are nice too, but I'm just, there's a difference. And when I walk into this place, there's this feeling of, I'm, I'm in a great, I'm in a great city. It makes you feel a certain way. Beauty is not wrong in and of itself. What about the pride of life? Is it wrong to want, um, a secure life? Is it wrong to want to have an abundant life where you don't have to worry about finances, where you don't have to worry about food, where you can feed yourself? Is that something that is wrong? And so, hence, this is where the challenge of worldliness comes in. When you ask yourself the question, what is it that makes something wrong where Jesus says, I want you to be apart from this. I want you to be apart from this. Looking at this passage just a little bit further, it says, Do not love the world, in verse 15, or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, when I look at this verse, what's being highlighted here is, are you able to understand the love of God? Are you living your life based off of your love to God, or are you living your life based off of meeting your own needs, if that makes sense? And so when I look at this verse, my definition of worldliness is this. Love for God and love for one another, or excuse me, the definition of godliness is love for God and love for one another. The definition of worldliness is love for self and being primarily interested in selfish things. For example, sex can be a beautiful, intimate thing. Sex can also be uh, something that is uh, addictive, something that is very self-interested, something that doesn't consider other people. And at the end of the act of sex, Both people are not brought closer together, but rather further apart. Attraction and beauty can be something that's incredibly good. It can also be an endless pursuit of the external. external. It seeks attention from others. It's never-ending. No matter how much money you put into beauty, it's never enough. Uh, It's something that can be quite consuming. The pride of life can be something that's incredibly good. It can also become something that becomes 
completely selfish. It destroys other people so that self can be lifted up. It says, no matter what, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna make it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna climb the ladder. Whoever comes into my way, I'm taking them out. I'm gonna make it. And then I'm gonna be somebody. And it destroys everybody in their path. Many examples of this in history. And so, when the Bible talks about turning away from worldliness, I believe, and as I read through this, it's not a specific action that the Bible is highlighting. Rather, it's a motive by which you op- uh, it's it's a motive by which you make your decisions, and it's a motive of how you live your life, as opposed to a specific action. I remember um, for a while, I kind of had this thing, uh, this idea embedded in my mind: you're not allowed to watch movies. Not allowed to watch movies because movies are bad for some reason. I don't know why; they're just bad. And I remember talking to a pastor. And he was like, yeah, I watched the Da Vinci Code the other day. Or, no, he said, I'm reading through the Da Vinci Code. And back then, the Da Vinci Code was like this massive movie because it challenged the very foundation of Christianity. And there were uh, historical facts that were kind of put into the book and made it very believable. And so lots of people are watching the Da Vinci Code and saying, oh, look, Christianity isn't really real. Like, do you know how Jesus was born? And do you know how, and then kind of, for those of you who've read the book or watched the movie. And I, I remember kind of, I was like, you're reading Da Vinci Code. You should be reading your Bible. Like, what's going on here? Like, you're a pastor. Come on. And the pastor was saying, oh, look, like, I think a lot of my members are actually asking me questions about this book. And so if I don't actually know what they're talking about, how am I supposed to, how am I supposed to respond to this? And I remember reflecting on, on what this pastor said. And I was like, yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. Shortly after, um, the church actually started putting out a series of uh, uh, DVDs or videos called uh, Decoding the Da Vinci Code. And I was watching it, I was like, is, is this re-? Anyway, <laughs> so that was like the church's response to the Da Vinci Code. And anyway, uh, my point is, if you highlight worldliness to a specific action, it becomes very, very complicated. And I believe when Jesus says, I want you to consider what it means to partake of the world and separate yourself from it. There's a mindset, there's a direction that Jesus is highlighting, and there's a mindset and a direction that the Bible is highlighting. So, moving on, and I think I've got a blank slide there. One might say, if you de-emphasize the actions of worldliness, you almost give free reign, and people can then say, oh, I can do whatever I want. Because if you can't highlight worldliness to a specific action, then I have quite a bit of freedom. I would point out in the previous verse that idea of loving God and loving others. The more one becomes familiar with Scripture, the more it informs what it means to love God. And the Bible actually gives guidelines as to what it means to love God and love one another. And there are things that we are supposed to do, and there are things that we are refrained from doing. And what we're supposed to, what the, what I'm saying is, become familiar with Scripture. Let it inform us what it means to love, and let that dictate how we live our lives. But there is a degree of freedom that is given to us as we develop in Christ. You no longer focus on, okay, I can do X, but I can't do Y. I can do Z, but I can't do A. And so I want to share this text with you. And I've given you the whole chapter to give you um, context, but I'm just going to highlight a few things. Something that Christians faced, uh, even in the days of the apostles, was this idea of living in a community where it revolved around pagan uh, temple worship. And what would take place is 
most of the food would be brought into the temple, whether it's uh, animals or uh, sheep or any sort of meat or poultry would be brought into the temple, and it would be blessed at the temple. If you go to any um, any Arabic community here in here in Melbourne, um, you're going to see this halal friendly sign on outside of shop windows, and it's the exact same thing. A holy man comes in and he blesses the meat a certain way, cuts it a certain way, and then it's then given to those who believe in Islam. And there's a specific uh, way that you prep the meat. Same with Jews; they believe in kosher type food, and so. The pagan world was very similar to that in that they would bring all the meat into the temple, they would bless it a certain way, they would cut it up, keep a portion of it, and then distribute it to the community. And what would then take place is people in the community would use that meat, eat it in their homes, eat it in their festivities, and, of course, eat the meat inside of the temple. And the Christians really struggled with this because many of these Christians came from those pagan backgrounds, and they were thinking, listen... There's a change in our lives. We went from believing in pagan deities to believing in the true God, and we no longer want to partake of this meat. And so we don't want anything to do with this temple meat. Well, what happened was there were people in the church that are like, hey, I'm really hungry. What am I going to eat if I don't eat this food? Because all of the food goes through the temple. And so Paul gives this advice, and he breaks down this argument of, is it okay to eat food that has come from pagan temples. And here's what Paul has to say. Verse 4. Paul says, Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other god but one. And he kind of just says, listen, idols are just man-made images. Like, they have no power. It doesn't actually do anything. If you look at verse 8, But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. So Paul is saying, listen, if you eat this food that comes from the temple, well, it's not a big deal. It's not going to hurt you. And if you don't eat it, well, you're not any better off. So if you're hungry, you may as well just eat it. Now, Paul saying this to certain Christians would be very disturbing, especially since if you turn to Acts chapter 15, Acts chapter 15, if you have your smartphones or your Bibles, Acts chapter 15, and we're going to read verses 24, and I'm just going to skim verse 29. Now, this is a very common struggle uh, in the Christian church in the time of Paul. And what happened is uh, the group of Christians gathered together, the leadership, and they decided or they asked themselves the questions, as we reach out to other non-Jewish people and they want to become Christians, what kind of things should we tell them to do versus what kind of things should we tell them not to do? And if you look at verse 24... Um, this is the letter that is sent out to uh, the Christians in that time period. It says, uh, this is what the leader said, Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled with you with words, unsettling your souls, saying, and then they kind of, there were Jews that said, hey, you have to do what we do. Some of the things were things like circumcision. Now, obviously, if there was a fully grown male who wanted to become a Christian and knew that he had to get circumcised to become a believer, um, that would be very, very challenging. And so basically, uh, the leadership is saying, listen, we're giving you a new set of rules. And if you look at verse 28, it says, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, uh, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. So 
here's the law of the land sent out to all the Christians. And basically, um, they're saying, don't uh, participate in eating food that has been offered to idols or food that has been prepped in the, te- in the pagan temples. And then time passes by, and Paul then sends this letter to the church of Corinth and says, hey, listen, idols can't actually do anything. It's okay for you to eat that meat. So there's kind of this challenge, right? On one hand, they've been told, don't eat the meat. And then on another hand, they've been told, you can eat the meat. So what, what, are, they supposed to, what are they supposed to think? So Paul this is Paul's argument. You have freedom in this area because just because there's food that comes from a temple, it doesn't change the food. There's nothing magical about it. That food is food. So if you're hungry, eat it. Now, here's Paul's advice. But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ has died? And he's saying, listen, if you eat this meat, it's not a big deal. But it might affect somebody else who it does bother. And it's one thing to eat that meat in your own house. But let's say there's a party in the temple. And a friend says, hey, Joe, Bob, or Jill, or Jane, I'm going to the temple. Do you want to come with me? Because, you know, this is the social event. And I just want to spend some time with you. And the believer has to make a conscientious decision. Okay, it's one thing to eat the meat in my own private home, but what happens if I go into this temple, this place of revelry? Isn't that something that's wrong? And Paul is saying this. Listen, you have a mind. You know who you are going to worship. If you don't go into that temple to worship, then you have freedom. But if it seriously bothers somebody else, then consider that person. And so Paul's counsel parallels exactly what the Apostle John talks about beforehand. Learn how to love God, learn how to love your neighbor, and let that inform your decisions. And that determines if something is worldly or if something is not worldly. I think a lot of you who are in corporate, in the corporate world, face a unique challenge that I don't face as a pastor. I don't have to do business lunches or business dinners or I don't have to go out to drinks after work is over where there's a environment where it's like you're at a party, you're at a club and there are things that you're probably going to be uncomfortable with. And it's like, wait, what do I do here? Isn't this a place that is worldly? Do I then abstain from this place and say, look, I'm sorry, I'm a Christian and you probably risk um, losing a promotion. You probably risk not being able to network with other people. You risk... Um, your, yeah, you risk your career, right? And so the question is, what, what do I do in this situation? And Paul's advice would be this. Why are you doing what you're doing? What motivates, what motivates you? What motivates you? Is this something, um, Paul, would, Paul would say, there is no morality attached to a room that plays music through speakers. Paul would say there is no morality attached to the color of lights that are on the ceiling, right? But Paul would say, is there going to be somebody else who is distracted by what you do, and will they be? Um, will their faith be challenged? Will their faith be challenged? I've got someone who's very close to me, who is uh, who doesn't come to church regularly. I care about this person very, very dearly, 
and one time the person came to me and he and he was like, "Hey, um, I'm gonna go. Uh, I'm gonna go to this place with my friends. We're gonna play some ping pong. Do you want to come along?" And I thought, "Oh, like." And, and I wrestled with this very thing. I was like, "Where are you gonna go play ping pong?" And he was like, "Oh, there's like this club out in Seattle, and uh, basically." Um, like I think I was 18 at the time. He's like, you can just come in. It's not going to be a problem. And I was like, oh well, it's a club, you know. I, and this is like right when I was like becoming this excited Christian, and I was at church preaching sermons. And I'm like, all right. And I thought about this. And I was like, I never get to spend time with this person. Like I'm gonna go. So I went, and uh, we just were playing ping pong. I'm getting to know uh, this individual. I'm getting to know his friends, and we're kind of having a good time. And I thought, oh well. This is all right, like, not a big deal at all. Now, in my mind, I'm thinking, what would happen if there's like some youth from the church that rocked up into this exact same club, and here I am preaching from the front? What kind of what kind of an impression am I going to give on this person? And I thought for a moment, and I was like, yeah, I, let's see what happens. Sure enough, thirty minutes later. Here comes a youth from my church, rocks up into the place, and she sees. She just eyeballs me from across the room, right? And she's like, "What is that guy doing here?" Like I was just preaching the sermon like the weekend before, right? And she comes and she's like, "Hey, Roy, what are you doing here?" And I was like, "Hello, Grace. <laughs> Fancy meeting you here." And it was okay because. The person came and said, "Oh no, he's just—he's coming to spend time with me, and we actually don't get to spend a lot of time together." And so, like, it wasn't—it wasn't a big deal. And um, but at that moment, I was just thinking, "Man, what kind of a message am I kind of sharing with this person?" And in the end, it was okay. But it's Paul is saying, "Consider those around you that may not be there for the same reason that you are there." And I think the more we consider what it means. Um, to give our lives to God, the more we consider what it means to live for our fellow man, I think that really does give some very broad but good guidelines as to what is good and what is not good. And so God gives this example of uh, of worldliness. In in my uh, life recently, I've kind of been um, convicted about worldliness, and uh, for me, uh, as a pastor, it's not like oh, I struggle with. Uh, going to the going to the club or whatever, but for me it's how do I end my day? Like I've got a stressful day, I just kind of want to relax and recoup and just kind of unwind a little bit. And the way that I do that is just flip on YouTube and I'm just I, I like watching talk show hosts, right? And I watch talk show hosts. And, oh, funny, funny, laugh, laugh, laugh. Oh, oh, this comedian. What else does that comedian do? Oh, funny, funny, funny. And then like later on, I'm like, oh man, like. Time has passed by. I'm really tired. The next day, I'm really, I'm even more tired, and it's kind of like, this is, uh, I want to spend less time doing this. So I told Jinha, I was like, look, um, this is something that I'm convicted about, and that doesn't mean I think that YouTube is evil. This is just something I want to spend less time doing this. Can you change the internet password? And uh, that way, I don't have a choice. I'm stuck to the mobile data that's on my mobile phone. And if I run out of data on my mobile phone, well, then I don't get to use internet at all. And so it makes me a lot more regimented in how I use my internet. And so I told Jinha, look, I just want to try something. We had Big Camp、uh, maybe a couple weeks ago, and it was a great way to restart because during Big Camp, don't have internet. You're working nonstop, and it's just like I shouldn't say you're working nonstop. You're just 
you're at big camp. I had a very easy job this year, so I can't say working nonstop. Um, big camp, away from everything, away from technology, and just spending time with my family. And I was kind of like, this is something that's incredibly valuable to me. And so cut myself off from internet, and uh, the melatonin kicks in right about 9.30, and at about 10.30, I'm just like wasted. And I realized my body was building a tolerance to, not a tolerance, but almost this expectation of, hey, it's YouTube time. And so it's kind of like, you know, at 9.30, like flip on the computer, I'm like, yeah, YouTube. And I realized I almost started, like I had a minor case of like insomnia where it's like it's so hard to sleep before 12 o'clock. And um, anyway, so for the last maybe three weeks or so um, since Big Camp started, yeah, like my body's kind of readjusted. 9.30, I'm really tired. 10.30, I'm wrecked. And then I just fall asleep. Wake up really early in the morning, and then like, I get to spend more time with Micah. And it's something that I'm happy to do, rather than like before my eyes are kind of like half open. And I'm like, is he eating? Okay, he's eating. And then, you know, like, be good. Don't, don't be loud. <laughs> or, you know what I mean? Like, I'm just, I'm a lot, I'm, a, I'm able to uh, connect with my family a lot more. And um, just recently, Jin Hao was like, you know, like, this is really nice. She's like, I'm really proud of you. And she's like, you going to sleep earlier is making me go to sleep earlier. And um, I, I'm recognizing just over the short, very short term, um, this is something that's really positive. And, um, yeah, it's just something that's been an incredible blessing to me. There's this passage in closing. It says in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable God, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect and the perfect will of God. Recently, we had a lunar eclipse, and basically, what happens is um, you've got the sun, you've got the moon, and what happens is the Earth comes between uh, the sun and the moon. And as you know, uh, the moon has no inherent life, uh, light in it of itself, right? It's just a ref- it reflects the light from the sun. And what takes place is, as the earth blocks the light from the sun, the earth is, uh, excuse me, as the earth blocks the light from the sun, the moon becomes dark. And so it is with our spiritual lives. When the world comes between us and the light that comes from God, we have no light in of ourselves, but we are just reflectors of the light that God gives to us. And what takes place is there is this darkness. But as the earth, as the world moves out of the way, the light is then again able to shine, and the moon then reflects the light from the sun once again. And what this verse is saying is, don't be conformed to the world, but be reflectors and be conformed to the image of God. Reflect the light that God is shining into your life. And by keeping from the world, we are able to reflect that image more and more. And I would say the world is, con- is in contrast to the love of God. The more you are able to love, show love to God, love to others, the more clearly people see the light of what God is truly like. May God bless you as you contemplate these things.